Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International with me, Evelyn McCleverty. On this month's show, our guest is the lawyer and civil rights activist from Zambia. It wasn't easy, I have to tell you. That's Linda Cassande. In 2016, she became the first woman to hold the position of president of the Law Association of Zambia. She stood up to the then ruling government party at a time when many people didn't. The backlash was a lot of smear campaigns, particularly on social media. The 2016 political elections in Zambia had been marred with controversy, allegations of vote rigging and questions about the judiciary's role in resolving electoral disputes, all at a time when Linda was at the helm of the Law Association. For the first time in our history, there was a threat to repeal the the statute under which the Law Association of Zambia was created. Linda now practices in Zambia, having set up her own NGO, Chapter One Foundation, and her own law firm, LCK Chambers. Protecting human rights and the rule of law are central to her work. It took me a while to jump because I was very comfortable where I was, I was earning a decent salary, and the option was to go into the unknown with no idea how I was going to fund it. Linda is widely known for speaking truth to power and starts off our chat talking about why she believes her term as president of the Law Association was different to her predecessors. It was different because I was a woman during a national general election year, which traditionally can be quite volatile politically. And the particular government that was elected into office in 2016 was a very populist government. For example, they had promised uh, more money in people's pockets and to give us a constitution in 90 days. And in 2016, the the presidential candidate for the Patriotic Front uh, was a gentleman named uh, Edgar Lungu. He assumed office following the death of a sitting president, Mr. Michael Satter, and was due to just complete his term. And he was widely viewed as the anointed one um, who was supposed to carry the mantle from where the deceased president had left off and was actually very popular at the time of his election. He was first elected in 2015 and then elected again in 2016. So the government did not observe what I would consider the norms of the rule of law and human rights um, pretty much from the start. And what was unusual about me being in office, being the first woman, is that Zambia is a very patriarchal society. And so people aren't used to women, particularly young women, I think I was about 38 at the time, speaking out against government excesses on a national platform. I'll now give you an example. When I was campaigning for the position, somebody actually said to my one of my campaign team members, um, doesn't Linda know that men are supposed to be in charge? Doesn't she read the Bible? So, I mean, that's the kind of context within which I was operating. And also, there was a feeling by probably the, the ruling government that I should have been aligned with them because of my tribe because the party in power was predominantly made up of people from the northern side, which is where I'm from, and the eastern side of the country. And also a member of my family 
was staff member of, of, of government. And so there was a feeling that I should have been aligned with the current government and that contradicting what they were doing was some form of betrayal. So that was the context. And it didn't make for, <laughs> it made for a very, um, very challenging times. On the one hand, I had to deal with my family member who was in office in government, uh, warning me about not to speak out too much, etc. And uh, on the other hand, I also had to deal with the stresses of managing the fact that we were constantly in the newspaper for doing what we were doing. And the government, the backlash was a lot of smear campaigns, not just uh, in the, the broadsheets or even the tabloids, but also particularly on social media. It appeared that there were people sort of hired to, to taint my reputation online. So that was the context within which I was working. And it wasn't easy, I have to tell you. So it's, it's not that any president previous to you taking the position had taken a different position in that they had always challenged the political system. It's just the fact that you felt that you were a woman in this position and you were being treated differently. I believe so. I don't think that anyone, any of my predecessors faced as much of a threat in all regards, whether it was physical safety and for the first time online safety, because I came into office at a time when Facebook and Twitter, so that was an added platform by which uh, I could be disparaged. I think also that the government in power um, was becoming increasingly authoritarian. And that's not something that we had seen since, because we'd previously been a one-party state prior to 1991. And the Patriotic Fund government was taking us down that road. It appeared that they were trying by all means to entrench themselves in power, which included trying to amend the constitution to make it more favorable to them remaining in office. And those are just some of the challenges that I faced. And, and maybe just to illustrate the, 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 the lengths to which the government went to try and silence the law institution of Zambia, um, when I was in office, for the first time in our history, there was a threat to repeal the, the statute under which the Law Association of Zambia was created. There was a, a, a bill published in the national newspapers that was ready for tabling before the National Assembly. And basically, the bill threatened to create multiple law societies to kind of dilute the voice of the one a national bar association that was had been in existence uh, since 1973. Do you think that they kind of felt that maybe that you were being too vocal and, you know, that you were in this position and you were causing too much noise? That's absolutely the truth. And it wasn't just the government who thought so. Um, even many members of the law association equally thought so. And in my own view, that was because people underestimated the threat that was posed by the government and what it was planning on doing. And there was also a feeling that you need to get along with the government to make sure things, things happen. And I think it's fair to say that with that particular government, uh, the Patriotic Front government, particularly under uh, President Edgar Lungu, there wasn't much engagement with professional bodies like the Law Association of Zambia, 
or um, or even the church or civil society, which was traditionally what would happen. The, the, the head of state engages with those stakeholders on important national issues. And during the patriotic front government's rule, those doors were closed to us. So there was no real way of engaging with them to try and smooth things over. But I do have to say that at the point at which um, we were fighting for LAS not to be dismembered, if you like, there was a lot of lobbying that was done, both with members of the government, but also, for example, members of the diplomatic corps, and to some extent, uh, even the church, because it was an existential threat uh, for the Law Association of Zambia. And I certainly wasn't going to allow it to happen on my watch. One of the main battles you waged as president of the Law Association of Zambia, which is known as LAS, was fighting against a constitutional amendment that permitted a minister to remain at their job even after dissolution of parliament. Can you tell us about this challenge? So in 2016, uh, just after the president Lungu was elected, the constitution was amended substantially. Virtually everything was amended apart from the Bill of Rights, which wasn't amended because the national referendum held to make the amendments, which is a constitutional requirement. The threshold wasn't met, so the changes to the Bill of Rights weren't made. So everything else was changed. And there was an assumption by the government that the effect of one of those changes was that ministers could now remain in office um, after the dissolution of parliament ahead of the general elections. So typically, um, members of parliament would vacate office when parliament was dissolved. They thought the position had changed. And um, we argued that it had not. And we took the case to court um, to challenge their decision to remain in office. And at the time, many people actually ridiculed us for doing so because they thought you can never win against government on such an issue. Uh, and in fact, um, a ruling party member, um, a ruling party, um, yes, member in the, in the media team, Mr. Sandichanda, even called me legally blonde, trying to sort of diminish my intelligence um, for having pursued this course of action. And so in August 2016, when we won the case, it was a huge victory and sort of I guess it affirmed that we were on the right path and that we, we took a justifiable cause to court. You decided not to go for a second term as Lance president. What did you do after that in a country where you believed there was a gap in the, the promotion of civil rights, human rights? Yes, so I stepped down from my position at LAS in April 2018. I had taken a two-year sabbatical to do that role, and I returned to my law firm after that period. But I just got the sense there was some unfinished business, not in terms of settling scores, but I really felt the, the threat posed by the government, and I felt I could do something about it. So I had been encouraged by Depros Muchena, who then was the regional head of Amnesty International Southern Africa, to form an NGO akin to a Zimbabwean organization called Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, which protects human rights defenders um, and also protects human rights and the rule of law. And they've been in operation for about 27 years. And I personally have been inspired by their example. They do some very amazing work. 
it took me a while to jump because I was very comfortable where I was. I was earning a decent salary. And the option was to go into the unknown with no idea how I was going to fund it. Had you been scarred by your previous experience being being president of LAS? I did wholeheartedly want to set up this NGO when I made the decision. The things that made me hesitate were, was I going to be able to sustain myself, particularly the standard of living that I'd become accustomed to? Did it scar me? I have to say it was a very, a very tough experience for me, both emotionally, physically, it, it was very difficult to have to face um, not only the enemy being, being the government who was trying to bring the, la- the law association to heal, but also um, the members of the association also, um, many of them didn't like the fact that there was so much upheaval, if you like. The cause wasn't very popular at all. So I thought I'd try and create an institution where everybody in the in the organization was behind or supported the cause of fighting for human rights and the rule of law unlike in a membership organization where you have people from sort of all kinds of walks of life uh, people who are not interested in politics so that's what I thought I'd do I thought I'd be able to do it e- more easily in a in a in an association that was made up of like-minded people and that's that's what mainly prompted me to set up Chapter One Foundation in July. 20, well, I, I set it up in May, but the doors opened in July 2019. You've said that one of the biggest tests that Chapter One faced was when the then government published a constitutional amendment bill in 2019, christened Bill 10. What was the bill? And um, yeah, tell us a little about it. So the Constitution Amendment Bill Number 10 of 2019, or Bill 10, as it was called, was basically formulated by the Patriotic Front government to try and entrench its hold on power. And this was done through um, proposing the removal of the limit on the number of MPs in Parliament, which would have favoured them. They would have been able to do gerrymandering in their political strongholds. It also proposed a clause in which, um, because under the 2016 constitution, you have to meet the 50 plus one threshold to be elected a presidential candidate. And so um, in anticipation of any difficulties, because the previous election in 2016 was very tight, uh, ahead of the 2021 general elections, they introduced that clause in the bill for the the leading presidential candidate, if they don't meet the 50 plus one threshold, to co-opt another party to make up the numbers. So it would have been easier for the incumbents to win again. The bill also made it easier to fire the speaker, judges, and to pack courts with people affiliated with the government. So yeah, it was an evil bill. Initially, uh, LAS, the Law Association of Zambia, went to court first to challenge the bill. And um, I think it was a couple of weeks later, Chapter One Foundation filed its own petition. Um, We made slightly different arguments. Uh, And the two petitions were, were heard side by side. So in the same court at the same time. Um, Now, when that case came to court, I noticed that there was no media attention. There was nobody in the gallery paying attention to this case. 
And so I posted on my Facebook page that this was probably the most consequential case in Zambia since the 1972 case of Mr. Kumbula versus the Attorney General, in which Mr. Harry Kumbula challenged the reversion to a one-party state in 1972. And so I called on people to take interest in the case and to attend court and to watch what was happening. And sure enough, the next day, the gallery was full. The media spotlight was on the issue. In spite of that, the court made a ruling essentially dismissing our case on a technicality, in my view, not really dealing with the issues that we had raised in our petitions. But we didn't give up there. We then worked together with other civil society organizations, the church, and also the opposition to ensure that the bill was not passed. And um, through a social media campaign, particularly by the Alliance for Community Action, led by Laura Mitty, um, there was a huge galvanizing force to ensure that the population said no to Bill 10. And as I always say, if there's nothing politicians fear more, it's the masses. And we had people on our side. But eventually the bill didn't pass because um, both times when it was tabled before Parliament, the opposition members of Parliament, almost all of them, walked out. And therefore, there weren't enough numbers in the chamber to meet the threshold to pass the bill. And I, I mean, when I say that it was nothing short of a miracle because... The government tried everything to pass that bill. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International with me, Evelyn McCleverty. Our guest on this month's show is legal practitioner Linda Cassande. A note about this podcast, it's funded by Irish Aid and is brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International, IRLI. IRLI is an NGO which uses the rule of law to tackle global injustice and is supported by members of both branches of the legal profession throughout the island of Ireland. IRLI has a programme in Zambia focusing on tackling widespread corruption in the country and improving access to justice for unrepresented accused people in the country's prisons. You can find out about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.ie. Back now to this month's guest, Linda Cassande. You've a great story to tell, Linda, about um, a landmark case for Chapter 1 following polling day in Zambia in 2001. Can you tell us about it? On polling day, which was 12 August 2021, in the middle of polling day, at sort of noon, the government shut down the internet, as in it shut down all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. There was no accessible social media platform. And I think the government really miscalculated there because the people of Zambia were furious. They really underestimated the reach that social media has and how ordinary Zambians rely on it for their information, to communicate with friends, family, um, for business. So it was, they were very, very upset. And why did they shut down the internet? Well, they shut it down, we believe, because... Um, it would have hampered the transmission of information about the election results by people who were doing parallel voter tabulation. So there, were, um, there was a civil society organization called the Christian Coalition, very Catholic organization that monitor elections and election results. 
there were other players as well that also did the same thing. So the aim was to slow down the movement of information so that people couldn't keep tabs on whether the election result was being manipulated. But thankfully, I had attended a workshop, I believe it was in 2018, organized by um, MISA Zimbabwe, the International Commission of Jurists, and the Media Defense Initiative uh, from the UK, which was specifically about internet shutdowns. And there was a Zimbabwean lawyer who explained how they had successfully challenged an internet shutdown in Zambia. So I then thought, well, this is something that could happen in Zambia, particularly looking at the trajectory we were on with, a, with, a, with creeping authoritarianism, increasing repression. So ahead of the election, we were ready. We had um, drafted a petition that was ready to be filed in the constitutional court. But following discussions with members of civil society, other lawyers ahead of polling day, uh, it was decided to change tack and to go via the judicial review route, which assured us of getting, uh, well, not assured us, but would have been more likely to get injunctive relief of the court. And sure enough, when we filed our judicial review application, court immediately granted a stay restoring the social media platforms. So it was a huge win for, for um, ordinary Zambians and a big success story for Chapter 1. Absolutely. You've another story, a great story about your challenge um, that Chapter 1 took when the Electoral Commission were deciding to do away with the voters' role and create a new one. Give us a little background to that. Well, I have to say that was not an easy journey at all because Chapter 1 Foundation had noted that um, the Electoral Process Act contained a provision requiring continuous voter registration and that had been enacted in 2016 but had not been implemented. So when the Electoral Commission of Zambia decided they were going to do away with the existing voters' role and give a 30-day period for everyone to register to vote, we decided that this was a good time to challenge the Electoral Commission's actions. And also, there was coinciding with that an ongoing national registration card registration process. The national registration card is what you need to be able to register to vote. And the government was trying to increase the number of registrations in their strongholds to give them a leg up in the national election. And so we took the case to court. We were the first people to take the case to court. But unfortunately, there were other parties who were also interested in challenging this, the main opposition, the UPND, and also other civil society actors. So there was a little bit of friction between the different competition, if you like, to try and see who would, who would ultimately um, take their case to court. Can I just ask a very obvious question, but what was the concern here? So by limiting the period for registration of voters to 30 days, the fear was that many Zambians would be disenfranchised. And by only focusing the registration process for national registration cards, in um, patriotic fund party strongholds, people who were not in those areas wouldn't have access to vote either because they wouldn't have the national ID you needed to be able to register to vote. We did take the case to court, but ultimately the court dragged its feet and it wasn't heard ahead of the election. Um, But subsequent to the election when the new government was uh, elected into power, 
we decided to take up the issue again. We, we then co-opted a number of civil society organizations to write to the Electoral Commission to find out whether they were going to implement continuous voter registration now that there'd been a change in the regime. We also issued a statement at the same time, and as a result of that pressure, the Electoral Commission not only implemented continuous voter registration, but also promised to deal with other pending issues, such as the ability of people in the diaspora to register to vote. They're also going to look into electronic voting as well. I've been reading about the various environmental concerns um, in Zambia at the moment, uh, namely surrounding lead poisoning. And you've also been telling me about a national park where the largest bat migration in the world takes place, which is now under threat because of commercial farming activity. Are there legal avenues to pursue environmental claims within the country? And do you see various rich ecosystems in your country under threat as a result of of short-sightedness, political short-sightedness at the moment? Absolutely. Um, So with regards to the bat migration case, there is a law firm called Muyatwa and uh, Associates who are taking up that case. Basically, they have challenged the decision by the Environmental Management Authority to grant the corporation involved to uh, conduct commercial activity in the area. But there is an emerging well, not really emerging, it's been happening for quite some time. The commercial activity is now interfering with a lot of communities uh, being disrupted and being displaced. Uh, we're seeing not just lead poisoning, like, like as in Kabwe, where there's a, there was an old mine there, but also just general environmental pollution from the, the effluent uh, from mining activity. And there appears to be a feeling by those in authority that people would rather have this commercial activity for the greater good of the economy and feel that the environmental impact on these uh, communities and and these habitats are inconsequential or certainly of less consequence. And that's causing a lot of friction. And of course, most of the people in these communities are not very powerful. So there have been some attempts by people just to defend these communities who have been impacted by commercial activity. But it's really difficult because you're up against large corporates with a lot of resources at their disposal. Often you need experts, most probably international experts, to testify, and that's costly. So it's really difficult to defend environmental cases in Zambia at the moment, and very few lawyers or law firms have the capacity to really take these challenges on. What do you see the long-term consequences of that, though? I mean, already we're seeing deforestation in the country, climate change, as I mentioned, internal displacement of of communities. We're seeing um, families have health issues to do with the pollution in their communities. It's having real consequences right now. But because, as I said, a lot of these people who are impacted by these things uh, are not very powerful. These are not issues that that are brought to the public's attention and they're difficult to challenge. And this could end up being a security concern for the country, you know, especially if a level of displacement continues. I agree. And I think the real problem is that, for example, with some mining activity that's been authorised in a national park in the Lower Zambezi, 
And the arguments I've heard in favor of that non-utility is that, after all, ordinary Zambians don't really benefit from these national parks and tourist attractions in those areas. And I have to say that, that to some extent that is true because often these tourist attractions, these tourist facilities, lodges, hotels are not accessible to ordinary Zambians. They are very, very expensive, charged in US dollars. And so ordinary Zambians don't get to benefit from the natural wealth that we have as a people. And so there's a disconnect between seeing the value of our natural resources and seeing the short-term benefit of having money in your pocket. And I think certainly the lodge owners ought to take notes and do more to make these facilities accessible to ordinary people. Otherwise, their very existence will be under threat. Is this public land? National parks are public land, yes. Yeah, so it would be partly also the responsibility of government to ensure that everyone has access to these lands. Well, that is true, but it's it's government and not just this government, but successive governments that have been encouraging this commercial activity, not only in national parks, but in, in other sort of rural areas in the country. I mean, I understand it. Our country is very poor. We're debt ridden. And so there is a move to try and create employment and to increase access to economic resources for ordinary people. But there needs to be a balance struck somewhere. And I believe, for example, tourism is a great money spinner for our country. And um, if it's played right, it can benefit local communities and bring financial resources to the country. How would you describe the current political situation in the country now and, and the civil society, human rights, rule of law space? Is it any different to what it was when you were at the helm of LAS? Okay, it is, it is quite different uh, in a positive sense. In the last 10 years or so, the, sh- the civic space was shrinking dramatically. People were afraid to speak out. They were looking over their shoulder when talking to people about sensitive topics. The right to freedom of assembly was virtually non-existent in terms of people's ability to protest and do public protests. And the internet also was under threat with um, the enactment of the Cybersecurity and Cyber Crimes Act. Um, so the, the space had really shrunk. And I would say it's, it's, um, it is fair to say that under this current government, there have been some progressive moves. For example, the crime of defamation of the president, which was constantly used by successive governments to stifle dissent, has been repealed, at least for civilians. And... Also, their moves to um, amend the Public Order Act, which is being uh, proposed now as the public gatherings bill to make it easier for people to publicly assemble. And the death penalty for civilians has been abolished. And also the government is more accessible now. I mentioned earlier that in the previous regime, it was difficult to engage with government in meetings on any sort of platform, whether it was inviting them to speak in a radio program, TV program, all of that didn't happen, or or just meeting government officials. But now the government is far more accessible and willing to engage with not only civil society, but various other groups uh, in the nation. And I think that is very progressive. But of course, there's still more to be done, more law reform that needs to be uh, effected. No system is ever perfect, but 
at least there is some kind of progress being made. I know that some of the work that Irish Rule of Law International were involved with was helping to fund a prisoner. He he basically sought a better life in Zambia, but the better life in Zambia didn't exist. And then, you know, he couldn't get back to his country of origin and he was in prison. And um, apparently this is quite a big concern that there are a lot of prisoners, if they can't fund themselves once they're imprisoned, to go back to their country of origin after illegally entering your country, that they remain in prison because the government don't have the funds. It is a significant problem in in Zambia and it's also resulting in prison congestion. Yes, yes, that is a problem. Uh, So basically, people who are declared illegal immigrants are normally expected to either fund their own uh, repatriation to their country of origin or if they have an embassy in the country, have their embassy facilitate the same. But often these people aren't able to communicate with their families or their embassies or maybe are running away from their governments. There is a challenge there. Before we go, Linda, I wanted to ask you about your book. I believe you have a book in the making. Tell us about it. So I've written a memoir and basically it details my story from between the periods 2011 to 2021, which um, coincides with the reign of the Patriotic Front regime and how my story is intertwined with the history of Zambia during that period what role I played in trying to push back against authoritarianism and repression in our country. But mainly, it's the story of women in leadership and why we need more of them. It's really a call to arms for more women to enter into the leadership space because, as people often say, representation matters. And women bring a different dynamic to the table when they are in leadership. And I often cite a story that um, I heard on the BBC from the then Swedish foreign minister who told the story of two warring factions fighting over a river on a map. And at the time, there were only men in the room. But when women were introduced to the conversation, they pointed out that, in fact, that river had dried up many years ago. And they were fighting over nothing. And they knew that because those are the women who went to collect water and used it for, you know, household chores. So it's just a way of illustrating how, what women can bring to the table, a different perspective, a different lived experience from men. So that's really what my book is about. Linda, thanks for your time. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed my time with you as well. And that was Linda Kasande, who's based in Lusaka in Zambia and whose book Women Resilience and the Will to Lead will be available in the coming weeks. That's it for this month's show. Thanks, as always, to our funders, Irish Aid, and thanks to you for listening. If you like the podcast, please do share it widely. Until next time, keep well. 